supply consulting, warehouse operational, market share, material handle, Gabrielle. Hi, Charles. It's the end of the week. It is. And welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, we're very excited to have Gabrielle. Anyone who doesn't know, because you don't know this, Gabrielle, but we have this rapidly expanding audience of, of strangers. So to introduce you, you are a senior partner here at LIT and have been for a long time. It's been almost eight years. You're one of the OGs of LIT. Long time. I'm not sure what OG stands for, but... Original gangster. Okay. Well... Then it's appropriate. Yeah. And uh, t this is going to be an exciting episode because this is the first time we're going to attempt to add visual aids to the conversation. We'll see how it goes. So people who uh, are tired of looking at me, I promise there'll be some there'll be some pictures that will make everything look a lot better. Yeah. So we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to go back, way back in history, mm -hmm. and we're going to talk about Canada's fur trade. Yes. And before we do that, it'd be fun to just talk about, as people don't know this either, you are um, essentially a New York native, although yeah. at this point you've become a Montreal native. Uh, well, thank you. Pretty close. Yeah, I'm six years, I think. Six years. Yeah. Uh, but as an American, yeah. you have this interest in this topic, which... For us Canadians, it's always, you know, we always get this kind of warm fuzzy that there's an American interested in our history. So I say it's the what, zeal, what the zeal of the convert, you know, when you're new to something, then you're really into it. <laughs> the zeal of a convert, right. Um, I've always been interested in this part of American history and North American history. Um, and so I'd read about the fur trade, I'd thought about it, and then what spurred me onto this project, which got me into it in the last couple of years, was I was walking my dog, uh, taking my dog for a walk. And I found a box that someone had left out with their trash. And it was full of stamps, letters, postcards, uh, canceled checks. But it looked kind of antique. And so I started looking through it, and it was with the trash. So I, was like, I just took it home. And I took it home. Uh, and I kind of looked through it, and it was cool, but I put it away. And that was, like, in 2019. Fast forward, it's COVID, like the mm. dark era of COVID, when there was nothing to do. Yeah, and you're you depressed. Like home looking every for anything night, to entertain yourself. Anything to do yeah. that would be interesting. And I was like, huh. And I pulled it out of the closet, and I started looking through it, and it had all this cool stuff in it. So um, there were hundreds of uh, antique postage stamps, so I got really into postage stamps, and I started looking through the letters, and one night I started Googling some of the names of the people that were in the letters, which is kind of silly because they'd been dead for a very long time. Uh, these letters, everything that's clear in the box was from the late 1890s to the early 1900s. Yeah, so, that's a crazy. So cool. So anyway, so one of the guys I googled came up with like a ton of results and i was like oh and it turns out he worked for the hudson's bay company and the hudson's bay company archives are digitized and and you can it's all indexed and so there's all this stuff about him and it was like super cool and i was like oh this guy in this letter is like here and so that got me into hudson's bay company the archives looking at it and that's sort of how i dove into this and again it was covid so i had a lot of time so. and for uh folks who haven't visited our offices 
this culminates, your passion for the Hudson's Bay and the fur trade culminates in uh, essentially a museum exhibit in our new offices yes. that walk people through um, through that, that, that very vital and important part of Canada's history yeah. um, from a very special lens. And we'll get into that lens in a second. Yeah. The first thing is, so why is the fur trade important? Yeah, it's fundamental to the founding of Canada. Uh, and Canadian history, it's modern, let's say, Canadian history of the last couple hundred years uh, is a story of extractive resources, and for beaver furs were one of the first things that were extracted. So European settlers uh, came to North America. They could see that there were a lot of beavers, and beaver hats were very popular in Europe at that time. So all men had different kinds of hats, men of all different walks of life. They all had these hats made of beaver fur. And the Europeans, they had hunted their own European beaver to extinction. So they needed a new source of beavers, and these Europeans realized that they were in North America. And at the same time, uh, the Industrial Revolution was getting going. There were all these manufactured goods, and the, the people making these goods wanted more markets to sell them to. So the idea came up of this trait, that the Europeans would bring manufactured goods to North America where they would trade them for furs that the indigenous communities would capture and, and that was that was the crux of the trade. Yeah. So. But what's interesting then, if we go one step further yeah. and back to the back to why we would put up an exhibit, a museum quality exhibit on our walls, is as a logistics person, you had a special interest in the fur trade and and and, yeah. and how, what it implied about a supply chain. Yes, because when you get into okay, well, how did they do this trade of the furs for the manufactured goods? So then I started reading about it, and it was really cool. And there's all this supply chain stuff, and that's what got me super into it. So there were really uh, two major fur trading companies in Canada in the 1700s. Really, it was like the height of it, 17 to the 1800s, and. Uh, one of them, the biggest one, which is still exists today, is the Hudson's Bay Company. Uh, and they had this, their strategy was they would take manufactured goods on a big ship, which they would go up the, through the straight, Hudson Strait into Hudson Bay by Greenland, like very far north. And they would land in the bay with the big ship, and then they would offload everything. And then they would trade at the edge of the bay, and then the, and then the trading would go south, where the indigenous communities were trading with each other, going all the way south, and then the first would come north, and they would trade at the bay. They had a big trade going. About 100 years after they started, in the late 1700s, then the Northwest Company opened up, and they had a different strategy. So it was like, cool, because okay, they had a different way of doing it, which was that they would bring the ship to Montreal down the St. Lawrence River, so much further south, and then they would portage it overland to Lachine, where you grew up. My hometown. Exactly. Uh, to avoid the rapids in the river. And then they would take canoes and they would bring all the goods by canoe through the river system into the Great Lakes, land on the western edge of Lake Superior at a first Grand Portage and then Fort William. And there they would trade with the community. So the furs would come through the river and lake system from the far west, very deep inland, and come uh, to Fort William. And then that's where they would trade one for the other. Uh, so these were two different strategies. The two companies were hugely competitive with each other, like to the point of war, basically, um, because they were in they were encroaching on each other's right, territory. Right, at some point, those right. two when the, the river systems exactly run when, into the, each. when the Northwest Company comes in and starts going south, they cut off the trade that was going to Hudson's Bay. Yeah, and so the HBC people are like, we, no, no one's coming north anymore, and so they're in a big you know uh, fight with each other. But they've got different strategies, different kinds of boats, uh, different cost structures, different kinds of people in order to move these goods in different ways. And I thought that was really interesting. 
And so, so, and we're going to get into it. I just, I got to, for people who, yeah, when we say the Hudson's Bay Company, yes. Canadians now know that as the Bay, which is, continues to be a retailer. It, it yeah. is, it is one of, if not the oldest incorporated uh, company on planet Earth. Certainly the oldest it, in the Western Hemisphere. In the Western America. Hemisphere. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's owned by an American um, private equity guy who owns a bunch of these. They he, bought he owns, Lord and Taylor. Yeah, Lord yeah. and Taylor. And one of the most coveted titles in retail is that when you're the president of the Hudson's Bay Company, you still have the title of governor of the Hudson's Bay. Yeah. So, so this this New Yorker, probably someone you've run into at you know somewhere in Central Park, is still known as is officially known as the governor of the Hudson's Bay. Yeah, and that that transition to a department store is very easy to see, like how it morphed. So you have this fur trade. They have they have big depots where there where there's major trading posts, which are like warehouses, and then they have outposts. Um, all these different little small trading posts in the in the interior. So you end up with, you've got territory, you've got stores kind of all over the place. And they, it's like, um, kind of like a company town or something. They're like the only game in town. If you yep. want stuff, you got to go to the Hudson's Bay Trading Post to get yep. your stuff. And so morphing from like a backwater outpost that sells pot, pots and pans. General and merchandise. General <laughs> merchandise. You know, you see it becomes a store, it becomes a department store, and it just morphs into the department store model. All right, well, let's get let's bring it back yeah. to th- what we've talked about when we talked about this, which is just the reason it's fascinating to us as supply chain consultants is the history um, of the supply chain. Um, th- it's not so much the history of the supply chain. It's that these folks who ran both of these trade uh, systems, yeah. networks, were solving supply chain problems. Yeah. Exactly the same supply chain problems as we solve today, yes. just that the technology and the, uh, and the hurdles and the barriers were, were different, yes. and, but, but fundamentally the same problems that you encounter. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and I mean, let's go, we, you start with demand. Right, um, so so I think you addressed that already. There was this, this this hunger for beaver. I I'm listen. We're not historians. We're allowed to get it wrong. Call us out if you know it's wrong. But I understood yeah. that it was particularly because the beaver pelt was was waterproof. Like like yeah. it, it withstood in the rain warm. very well. I made a very attractive, like it wasn't just like it's good looking, yeah. uh, but that it actually had a practical benefit. But uh, who knows? So we got the demand, and we and as you said, you could create um, a, a, a buyer and seller because there was demand on both sides. Yeah. The indigenous communities and, 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 and of, of 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 North America had things they would be willing to buy and saw value in what the the Europeans could provide. And then they, of course, in turn, could provide something that was highly valuable to to the Europeans. Yeah. So you got that demand, which is great. Yeah. And and then you have this concept of, 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 of a supply network, right? And you said something really interesting just a minute ago about that portage between uh, uh, Montreal and Lachine, which anyone who's in Montreal knows that Lachine is a 15 minute drive without traffic it's it's nicknamed the first suburb because uh, it, 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 it is almost as old as, as Montreal itself but um, these were water networks in, yes, in the 16th and 1700s water is your main That's transportation method yeah. there's no railroads there's no highways right. and water presents all sorts of problems 
like navigability, right? You could only bring a boat, an ocean-going boat to Montreal because there's a wall of rapids at Lachine that prevent these boats from going any further. And there's just they, they use different kinds of boats. There's big there's big ships that come from Europe. There's large canoes, canoe de maître, that would go certain distances. Then they had little smaller kind of sprinter canoes. Um, and they when you look in the course of HBC history over a couple hundred years, they they, they are constantly innovating and changing with transportation. As transportation technology changes, they add they rapidly they, take they advantage. take advantage and there's. Then there's carts and there's dog sleds and later there's airplanes and railroads and there's all these things get added on right. later on. Um, but yeah. the, what you just said was really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, so you can imagine it's almost like last mile delivery today. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That we start with these ocean going vessels yeah. as the the trunk. Yeah. Then you have these giant canoes, yes. which is how we describe them really. Giant canoes going up the St. Lawrence, mighty St. Lawrence River, yeah. through the Great Lakes. Yeah. But as people branch off into ever smaller down, lakes, off the lakes and into the, the canoes have to get smaller, more portable, totally. right? Yeah. Just like just like when we see two yeah. trailers hooked up yeah. in tandem and then ending up with those folks on scooters delivering yeah. your meal thanks to Uber. Yeah. <laughs> just the other day, you know, I live at the top of a of a hill, yeah. and I ordered some Uber, and it said that my driver was a, on bicycle, mm-hmm. and I felt so bad, like <laughs> oh, I, because you know, you do, I hope they give you a warning that says like <laughs> you're going up a hill. Do you really want to on a bike? Do you really want to take this order? And the, oh, I'm gonna have to extra tip, but thank God it was a motorized bike, so right. I didn't feel bad. I just took the food and said, on your way. <laughs> um, but so so that's like uh, you were explaining the the. The, the networks then essentially be the, your 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 market yeah becomes defined by the river network yeah. all the river the drainage basins of the and Hudson and also you have to imagine these they had the Europeans had not explored further a lot of this is also exploration right it's kind of an age when they're doing trade but it's mixed with a desire to explore to find new yep. things to map they're like obsessed with maps and going westward and there's all these um, missions sent off to try yep. to go so that that's especially in the 1700s kind of this also going on at the same time and they're trying to push further 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 westward down more difficult rivers and more difficult portages to, to get even further you have a connection to pittsburgh i do i have a deep love of pittsburgh oh, because yeah. of uh, oh, my yes. long-standing relationship with my beloved american textile company yes and um people don't know this but the original pittsburgh is fort duquesne yes a french fort they're designed to protect the emerging fur trade. That's why yes. it was first put there. That's on, where there's three rivers. At, right. At, I mean, why they call it three rivers? It's two rivers joined to become an... Uh, the anyway. Allegheny, the Monongahela. Yeah, and, and the Ohio. And the Ohio. But I just don't understand why the Monongahela didn't just say the Allegheny joins the Monongahela and continues on as the... <laughs> mon- well, not my business. So, so we, you know, that that canoe that canoe as the um, the essential the the the, the truck the the, the, yes. the truck and, and of the, the highway the, the canoes were a technology that the indigenous communities brought to the, yes. to, the, to the project here and they uh, maintained built them maintained them tr- taught the your Europeans about how to how to build them so one of the fascinating things that people have to think about when you think about the load you know the carrying capacity of the canoe there's a, obviously a weight limit yes there's also a volume of, 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 of goods that you can store in there. Yeah. And it unlike a truck, the human beings compete 
and their supplies, the food they have to eat, exactly. compete with the carrying capacity of, uh, the, you know, of, of the canoe or compete yeah. with the goods for yeah. that. And they actually had this requirement. They wanted short, lightweight, yeah. strong, tough people. Yeah. They didn't want, like, I certainly would not qualify, not because I'm overly tall, but I'm certainly too too voluminous to um, <laughs> to, to meet yeah. the stringent the, requirements. The voyageurs who were the, the, you know, the people rowing, uh, the men who were rowing, they were tended to be kind of short. Yeah. yeah. And like they'd look at me, they'd say, no, this is like 20 beaver hats <laughs> that I'm ultimately uh, displacing in the boat. Right. Um, the, but as you're doing the research, what I loved what you were sharing with us yeah. um, was the whole warehousing piece. Yes. There's also the archives are enormous. There's like millions of pages of digitized. Uh, there's a lot of um, microfiche from the old style that has been digitized. And uh, you can find inventory records, bills of lading, maps of warehouses, and just like, and all these. What I, I remember finding this uh, one inventory record, like an inventory book. Like, they had all these notebooks. They had, like, like a ton of notebooks, and they all had a coding system for how to keep track of the notebooks. So you open it up, and it lists all the locations in the um, outpost or depot that they um, had stuff in. So it would be, like, bail, bail room, axe room, apothecary. It's, like, lists all these places, numbers them 1 through, like, 30. And then you turn the page, and the 1 through 30 is across the top. There's all these columns, and then it lists the products, and it tells you how many are in each location. And I was like, that's so cool. So, uh, so like that's like right. they're taking so your inventory by location. They're keeping it's detailed inventory. Very detailed. Yes. This yeah, is exactly. inventory records that they have to send to headquarters back in London. Yeah, so it's all by hand. So there's there's like a ton of clerks and they're all writing constantly and they're they're re- recording every single transaction, every movement, everything. I mean I say every, maybe not well, every single look, thing, but we're they're not, recording we're, a lot of transactions. <laughs> they're doing their best to keep an accurate yes. real time, quote unquote record of inventory yes and they have different books so there's like an inventory books and then there's like books of like payments to the employees um loans to the employees all these different things then uh they would copy the books and send one set to london which is where the headquarters were and keep one set on site at the outpost or depot wherever they were uh and they just so they had all these records and that was very cool to see yep um that they how they did that yeah so here they are uh, they're doing their inventory management, they're recording transactions, they're duplicating it so that headquarters had a source of truth. Yes. I mean, these are concepts, again, yes. remain relevant today. We just digitized all of this. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it's it's almost funny. You could take someone and flash forward them into the future, and while they would be mystified by the how... The technology. Right? They would not be mystified by the why totally. and what. That they yeah. would say... Yes, this is what we wanted. Yes, and there's some. Um, I got to see some of the like reports. Like they're writing, they're they're taking, they're go like they would have these inspectors that would go to the outposts and like from the depot to all the outposts would go visit and like they're taking notes and describing what's happening and these in this way that's really yeah they're they're running their business and they're talking about what's what's coming in what's going out and how what are the volumes of furs that they're able to find and, and well and the the other p- part of the other side of that is these you know. <laughs> Well, we like to we like to talk about when we think uh, engineering principles were first applied in warehouse design, which we we know is roughly the 1960s is when industrial engineering gets applied to. But of course, yeah. there's been engineering and and good thinking going into totally. the design of a warehouse for for ages. Yes, and yeah, and part of some of the things that you you dug up from the archives, they, they definitely had a sense of. 
space usage, as you were talking about, in the canoe. Because the space was so precious in the canoes and in the ships, they had a series of different presses where they would press the furs and press the products to make them take less space. They had a concept of standard units of sizes so that the bales were in standard sizes so they would pack nicely together. And then they numbered the bales. They had lists of by number, what was in it, who it belonged to, where it was going. Um, yeah, they just they had a yeah. lot of the sort of proto-concepts of things that we do today. They well, and, and when, I remember when you told me that story about the pressing of the furs so that there's no air, right? right. Like when I, when I, not that I can bake a cake, but you know, when you, yeah. When, yeah, when yeah. you pound the cake to get the bu- bubbles out and all right. that. But it reminded me uh, in ancient Rome, so the amphora, which is where you store the wine. And so Mm -hmm. the wine's coming from all over the Mediterranean into Rome. And it's got the, the bottle's got this weird design. It's 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 almost like a pinball with a with a spike on the bottom. Okay. And it's like, why do they do that? Well, very good reason. When I stack these amphora in a boat, Uh the spike kind of acts as a stabilizer of the four amphora beneath it so that all stacked together in three dimensions it becomes this unit which then can move with the waves Ah, you know and so it uh, yeah i've just find so so you can go back to ancient roman probably well before that even and find people thinking about packaging and and being most economic both space and uh in the warehouse and then also in transportation yeah i think the last kind of fun thing uh, is that, you know, we, of course, are always dealing with our clients who are complaining about driver shortages, not so much in town, yeah. right, but long-haul driver shortages. Yeah. And so what, tell us a little bit about well, what was the long-haul driver of, of the 16th century like? Well, so it's interesting. So European men who didn't have a lot of job prospects, the New World was a great place to find a job. 100%. So there's a whole uh, influx of, of young men who come over and... And work for the comp- work for HBC in particular, um, including the guy that I first researched that I mentioned earlier from the letters. He um, was born in England and comes over as like an 18 or 19 year old and works on the ships and then it becomes a clerk and spends 20 years working for HBC. Um, so you have that group of people. Um, you also had men who were called uh, pork eaters, and the pork eaters would take the product from Lachine to Fort William. So they're kind of the... Modern-day Thunder Bay. Yes, in Ontario. So they, the pork eaters, and they were called that because they got pork in their provisions, they wintered in the city. They wintered in Montreal and Lachine. So they were a little bit more urban, um, and they were maybe a little better fed. uh, And they brought the manufactured goods to Fort William and then brought the furs back from Fort William to Lachine for export. Then you have from Fort William into the into the interior uh, the Northmen who live in the north and they winter in the countryside and in the with the indigenous a wild bunch a wilder bunch and the Northwest Company actually encouraged intermarriage they wanted their men to marry indigenous women because they thought that that would strengthen the their bonds, bond the bonds to the territory that they're working to the territory they're working but the bonds between with the communities with the company that yeah, it would increase their point. that it would Very good bond the sort of the buyers and the sellers together the Hudson's Bay Company uh, discouraged intermarriage and didn't really want that to happen and had kind of more of a class of clerks and directors that were that were sort of more separate I mean we never recommend to our clients that they should marry their suppliers <laughs> that <laughs> right. uh, we're, we're but neutral then, on it. Yeah, so the, the marriage, the Northwest Company, Voyageur, and the um, Indigenous Museum, that, that created the Métis 
kind of mixed community that's still in uh, thriving in Manitoba, in Manitoba, Manitoba yeah. around there. Um, that is, I find fascinating, and it's been great. And as you can see, we've see it's, it goes so much faster yeah. than you think because you go on for hours. But yeah. there's one little piece that I know I'm not allowed to ask, but it can always be cut. <laughs> so. Is that your only, uh, like, wouldn't you want to know what would it like be like to be one of those Northmen canoeing uh, uh, on the wild rivers? I, yes, in fact, I did wonder that. Uh, it is true that when I was about 15, uh, I took a month-long canoe trip uh, where we pretended to be voyageurs, and I was, it was because I was learning French, and I has, I'm sad to say that I think my French at 15 was probably better than my French today. Your French uh, is very good, okay. Gabrielle. Thank you. Um, but so yeah, so we we, we canoed, canoed uh, around Minnesota in the like in the lakes, and we ended at at uh, Grand Portage, which is near Thunder Bay, and that's and there's a fur trading museum there, and I have a very distinct memory of going to the museum and, and thinking it was really cool, and the whole trip was so cool, and so I kind of always was interested in this topic, and then revisited it later on. Two things we learned about Gabrielle on as as bookends to this very good conversation about the fur trade, is that. If you put out uh, uh, semi-interesting materials in your garbage, if Gabrielle will pick it up. <laughs> and, uh, and that there was a time when Gabrielle went on a month-long canoe trip, something that I never in my life would want to do. Uh, so it's, that's it's really cool. a pretty cool thing, especially up in Blackfy country of Minnesota. That would be wow. just the flies alone. Well, I really appreciate that you spent this time. Oh, thank you. I know that this is going to get released slower than most because we're going to add some. Graphics. We are going to show off all the amazing images that you've collected as part of your research that went into the the archive, uh, the the sorry, the museum display and uh, the book that you've you've put together on it. Yeah, so there's a book that's going to come out soon in a self-published way. Uh, that is the museum. Oh, actually, um, the, the, the exhibit content. No, but I, I have some folks at Random House who've expressed interest, so let's see what happens. <laughs> All right, thank so, you, everyone. Thank you. Good night. Bye.